Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Casey Newton, a leading technology journalist who's covered Silicon Valley for more than a decade. He's now the founder and lead writer for the Platformer Newsletter, which has become a highly influential news site for analysis and commentary on the major tech platforms, including Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, and others. I'm grateful to speak with him as part of The Hub's ongoing Future of News series about Platformer itself and its growing audience, as well as the relationship between the platforms and news production and distribution, and whether he's ultimately optimistic about the future of journalism in the age of big tech. Casey, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Let's start with Platformer itself. Why did you launch the site in 2020? What opportunities did you see and what problems were you trying to solve? Yeah, well, I think one of the problems I was trying to solve was to make sure that I could be a journalist for the rest of my career. Uh, I started my career working in newspapers and I saw the web come along and disrupt newspapers. And then once I got to the web working at The Verge, I saw social networks come along and start to eat up all the advertising revenue that was powering my website. And I thought, man, if I want to do this forever because I love it, I might need to find a different and more sustainable way of going forward. And around that time, I was uh, reading a newsletter by Ben Thompson. He writes this great newsletter, Stratechery. Ben had sort of gone out directly to his readers and said, would you support me? And I, my promise I'll make to you is I'll, I'll write a bunch of newsletters every week. Uh, maybe one a week will be free. And then if you want the full experience, pay me and we'll go for it. And also around that time, Substack had come along and had taken what Ben was doing and tried to open it up for anyone who wanted to try it, make it really easy for people. And so those two things came together and I thought, well, maybe I can give this a shot. You know, Maybe there's a chance that readers will actually pay me better than any media company would. Uh, and it will enable me to do the reporting that I that I love. So those were a few of the, the factors that led me to make that decision. As an outsider, Casey, it seems to me that a lot of mainstream reporting on Silicon Valley tends to start with an inherent aversion to the industry and that a distinguishing characteristic of platformer is that, well, by no means are you a booster of the platforms, your reporting and commentary doesn't start off with the same oppositional mindset. Do you agree with that interpretation? And if so, what do you attribute mainstream journalism's hostile positioning vis-a-vis big tech? It's a great question with many layers to it. I am somebody who started writing about tech because I loved tech. And so that did sort of set me apart. At the same time, I started writing my newsletter in 2017. I did a newsletter at The Verge before Platformer. 
And I started it because there had been this backlash against tech that was starting in the wake of our uh, 2016 US presidential election. And there was so much great reporting being done about the same platforms that I wrote about, but was discovering that they had been complicit in some really terrible stuff. And so I sort of felt burned by that. And I thought, I need to actually dig in here and see where I went wrong. And that led me to scrutinizing the platforms, I think, in a way that I didn't before. So you sort of fast forward to today, and I do still love tech in the sense that I love trying new software. I will use any new productivity app that anyone makes because I'm convinced it'll make me 1% better at something. Um, And I know that these platforms are probably going to contribute to a lot more harm. And so my thought has been that I could just sort of show up every day and say, shame on you, uh, and probably not get very far with these platforms. Or I could just kind of poke them gently, but relentlessly forever, and that maybe that will have some kind of collective weight. So that's kind of how I have have tried to operate is by like standing a little sort of closer to the castle walls. You know, some people like to lob bombs from like 5,000 yards away. I like to just kind of knock. In terms of why... Other platforms are different. I have one really glib answer that I think explains more of it than you might suspect, which is that uh, hostile coverage gets more retweets, or at least it used to. You know, I think Twitter really shaped the way, really reshaped the way that people wrote about tech because the stories that uh, inspired the most outrage often traveled the furthest and got the most attention. And even people who had sort of been writing more neutral coverage, you know, 10 years ago, sort of gradually shifted their position over time. So I think that's part of it. Uh, There was like a kind of brain poisoning effect that happened. Other people would say that, look, these platforms compete directly with the, the publications that these journalists are writing for. These platforms are often chasing these journalists out of jobs. I think that's probably a factor too, right? I think a lot of journalists probably don't feel the benefits of technology in their own lives. And in fact, their careers might be threatened by it. So I, I think all of those factors are in there. A lot, of course, has happened over the three or four years since you launched Platformer, including everything from Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter to the growing political attention that the platforms are facing in the United States and elsewhere. Here in Canada, for instance, politicians have gone from tripping over themselves to attract investment from big tech to attending announcements alongside them to now increasingly adopting a more adversarial positioning. From the perch of Platformer, Casey, what do you think has happened here? What do you think explains the shift in the politics of these platforms over the past handful of years or so? Well, I think in part, politicians are responding to real harms. I think there's pretty clear evidence that these platforms have not been careful with their younger users in particular. They have sought to attract a lot of younger users. They have not often built in safeguards to prevent those uh, younger users from being exposed to all sorts of, of terrible content. And politicians are, are are paying attention to that. I think in a sort of previous uh, era, so this is maybe like three, four years ago, politicians were sort of more concerned about how these platforms might be harming their own careers, right? Um, if you were trying to post something on Twitter and Facebook and it got removed and you're a politician, you might you might experience that as a terrible injury. Um, I think in general, politicians have noticed that these platforms have become exponentially more powerful than they were even 10 years ago. And it's just sort of in the nature of politicians to want to put a check on that power, appropriately so uh, in a lot of cases. Um, 
I do think that there is an, an element of it where sometimes politicians scapegoat these these platforms. I think there is a a kind of techno solutionist idea that you can solve a lot of problems in society just by changing the way that Facebook and TikTok and YouTube moderate content. I tend to be pretty skeptical of that idea, but politicians have been able to harness the fact that a lot of people don't really love Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or YouTube. And you can have a press conference and you can say, we're going to hold these people accountable and that will be exciting. And you'll probably get a lot of retweets, which it turns out that politicians love just as much as journalists. One shift that you observed in a recent article is what you describe as the quote, shrinking ambition on the part of Mark Zuckerberg and others from the notion of a digital town square to something narrower and more insular. What happened, Casey, in your mind to the goal of a digital town square? What have proven to be the key challenges for such a vision to come to fruition and the risks for the platforms themselves? That that question could sustain a podcast of its own, really. <laughs> I mean, that's there's such a, a rich history in, in that question you just asked, Sean. Um, I think that these platforms did start out with a lot of idealism. Yes, they they were and always have been money-making enterprises, and that's how they they saw them first and foremost. But top executives and a lot of the employees also really bought into the idea that social networks were going to be this democratizing force. They were deeply inspired by the events of the Arab Spring, where we were able to see a lot of pro-democracy protesting that took place on Facebook and Twitter. And this is what platform employees of the early 2010s thought that they were doing. They thought they were bringing democracy to every corner of the world. And then you get to 2016, 2017. It turns out that uh, Russia has been using Facebook to interfere with the U.S. election. It turns out that all sorts of national governments are running influence operations all over these platforms. All sorts of questions are being raised about the way these platforms are spreading misinformation, disinformation, hate speech. Um, you know, fast forward to today, now they're spreading deep fake synthetic media. The idea of running a social network that can host all of the world's conversation, whatever people have to say, has become a much less appealing proposition. There is so much more scrutiny on these platforms from every single corner. In some ways, they really can't win. Uh, it, it turns out you can't just draw one line, uh, one boundary around speech and have people say, okay, that's fair enough, we'll leave you alone. It's just an ongoing fight. And because these platforms had always been money-making enterprises, their ability to become a digital town square was always going to be secondary to the financial realities of having to operate a scaled business. And at the same time that they were building what they thought was a digital town square, the infrastructure they were building underneath it was that of a shopping mall. And so in, by 2024, I think people like Mark Zuckerberg were starting to say to themselves, maybe we just run the shopping mall. And maybe we don't pretend that we have to host every single debate you know, on our platform for the rest of time. Or at the very least, if those debates are going to happen, we're not going to show them by default to users who aren't asking to see them. Notwithstanding these shrinking ambitions, as you put them, it remains a prevailing view in a lot of online publishing that platforms like Google and Meta are benefiting from news content and therefore should compensate the publishers. Just last week, I spoke to the founder of one of the world's biggest digital news sites, who said as much. Where do you think that sort of thinking comes from? And what do you think it ultimately gets wrong? It, it comes from wishful thinking. It, it is so, uh, it would be so nice if um, Facebook was seeing all sorts of benefit from people posting links on Facebook and needed to compensate publishers for that in some way. But in fact, 
the exchange of value works in reverse. It is links being posted on Facebook that drives traffic back to those publishers, which publishers are hopefully able to monetize through ads and subscriptions and other ways. So I've just always thought that this idea wa was completely backwards and that in effect, it is a shakedown on this industry saying, we don't like you, you are unpopular and you're rich. And so we are just going to lie and say that publishers uh, are getting no value out of being on your platform and that Facebook is stealing from you and Google is stealing from you. And so we're going to levy this, this sort of fine. By the way, I'm not opposed to taxing these platforms in support of media. In fact, I wish somebody would. We've seen other countries do it. Spain said, you know, we don't like these snippets in Google News. We, we think that that's unfair to publishers. And I can see that case a little bit. I mean, I, you know, I, I my suspicion would be most publishers benefit more from being on Google News than don't. But the idea with Spain was if you are... Google and you want to display snippets of publishers' websites, like you were going to have to compensate them in some way. Google just pulled out of Spain because it, it didn't want to do that. Google is very cheap and it is not really doing very much to, to help journalism. And I'm, I'm the first to say that. But that at least to me felt like it was rooted in some sort of reality as opposed to the, the news law that we've seen in Canada, the one that we've seen in Australia, which is just based on wishful thinking. We'll come later in the conversation, Casey, to some of the alternatives that you've written about at Platformer. But before we get there, I just want to spend a bit more time on some of the arguments you've made about CAT because I think they bring a lot of insight to the conversation. A key one, for instance, that's been reflected in your commentary, and which is really fundamental to Platformer's overall editorial perspective, is that an open internet is fundamental and that any policies that undermine this principle risk ultimately breaking the internet itself. What is the underlying philosophical point here and what are, in your mind, are the risks of a less open internet? I really appreciate the question because I am somebody who, who really values the, the open web. Platformer is a creature of the open web. I read stories every day. I put links to those stories in my newsletter. I want people to go read those stories. The law that you passed in Canada presupposes that maybe I should pay publishers because I want to show links to other people's work. I, I should have to pay for the right to send you traffic. And I object to that. Now, obviously, I am very, very, very tiny in comparison to something like Facebook. But the principle is the same. And I do believe that law should be based on principles rather than the villains of the moment, which is what I think ha has happened in Canada. Another one of your criticisms of C-18, which I found fascinating, is that you actually think that the media's dependence on the platforms is unhealthy and something that they ought to be seeking to minimize, and that the Online News Act counterintuitively locks the industry into ongoing dependence on them. What's your insight here, Casey? What is the harm in your mind to news outlets, and why should they be seeking to extract their audience from an intermediator like Google or Meadow or, or whatever? Yeah, so, you know, Facebook is much less important in the news ecosystem than it was five or 10 years ago. Google, though, is still super important, as I'm sure you know. It sends something like 40% of all traffic to big publishers' websites. So that 40% of traffic that they're getting, that is the addiction, right? If you take away 40% of traffic from, from most news publishers, that's an economic catastrophe for them. That, that means your real layoffs. That calls into question the future sustainability of the business. So... By coming to Google and saying, we are going to tax you, you are disincentivizing Google from wanting to send you any traffic at all, I think just as a general principle. And then you bring generative AI into the equation. Google is in the, at the very beginning of a process that I will play out over the next few years, where 
over time, it's just going to show fewer and fewer links anyway. You're going to ask a question. You're going to say, what's going on in the news today? Google isn't going to bother showing you a link. It's just going to summarize those websites and it's going to tell you. And there's not going to be one visit coming your way. So if you've built your entire theory of the future of Canadian media around traffic going to links, Google has an answer for that. They're building the answer, right? But you are betting on that traffic always coming your way, always being of huge value. So I don't think this is the time for platform publishers to get addicted to this Google money. I, you know, I understand it'll, it'll help you breathe easy for the next few years, maybe, but the traffic is going away. So build a solution for that now. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Maybe you've seen in this very same podcast feed a new program called Hub Headlines. It features the best analysis and thinking of our writers each and every morning. It's delivered to you in a convenient audio format in this podcast feed. All you have to do is click and download. Instead of reading Sean Spear, Howard Englund, Ginny Roth, any one of the terrific writers contributing to the Hub each daily, you can listen to them on the go. It's convenient. It's built for people like you with busy lives. If you're multitasking, if you enjoy the Hub but can't get on a screen, check out Hub Headlines. We've got you covered with the audio version of the Hub's best commentary and analysis each day. Again, you can grab this all on the same podcast feed that you are listening to this program now. Simply download each morning Hub Headlines and enjoy our best analysis and insights. You recently left Substack. How much of that was motivated by the goal of eliminating an intermediary between you and your audience? And how much was about other factors, including the extent to which Substack had become a platform for ideas and voices that you didn't want to be associated with? It was this. Uh, yeah. So the issue with Substack was that it had built all of these social features so that increasingly it was feeling like an intermediary. Like there is a Substack app. If you chose, you could read Platformer in the Substack app. Because Substack has chosen to host some literal 1930s Nazis, that meant that you could be thumbing through your Substack feed and you would see the latest edition of Platformer and then you'd see some Nazi ravings uh, that had just been promoted there. And Substack refused to adopt any sort of policy around you know, not only eliminating those uh, blogs, demonetizing them, it wouldn't even commit not to promoting them or showing them on those surfaces that it had invented. So Platformer is, among other things, uh, a journal for people who work in trust and safety, who work in content moderation. And we were just getting this feedback of like, hey, you're the content moderation newsletter. Why are you on the Nazi website? Like, I needed to have a good answer to that question. And it couldn't be, mm, I don't want to think about it, right? So like, we we sort of had to move. Our readers really wanted us to move, and we did. I think Ghost is like, it's funny that you use the word intermediary because when I started a newsletter, it was because I wanted to get away from the intermediaries of Google and Facebook. Substack, when I joined it, I think did not feel like an intermediary, but it is as it built in all these other social features, all of a sudden it did. And so by moving to Ghost, I was able to sort of get one step removed again and feel like, okay, I'm just communicating directly to my audience. Uh, funnily enough, the CEO of Ghost told me that he called it Ghost because he doesn't want any of like his uh, customers' customers to even know they exist. Like, it's like, you should never know anything about... Like, if Ghost is working well, you should never know anything about Ghost. And after three years on Substack, that was music to my ears. As we've already discussed, well, you've been critical of Bill C-18, Canada's online news net, 
you're not outright opposed to government support for the news media altogether. You've written in favor, for instance, of levies, online platforms, or even direct government support to local news. Casey, what in your mind is the case for public support to the news media? Is it trying to solve a small problem, say the diminishment of local reporting, particularly in smaller communities? Or is it a bigger problem where there may be a role for the government to step in to help larger players? How do you understand the scope and nature of the problem? I, I think public media solves both of those problems, right? Like one of our ongoing challenges in journalism is that it has never really paid for itself. When it has been sold, it has always been part of a bundle. It's often the cartoons and the games that are selling the subscription and not the journalism itself. And a really elegant solution to that is that you just tax the populace and you invest that money in journalism, both at the local and the national levels. We truly have no solution for the crisis in local journalism. People have been talking about this for 20 years, and we're really not very much closer than we were when we started to finding a solution. Um, we also need great national media. There are studies that show that countries that invest more in public media have stronger democracies, which it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. So I just love that idea. And you know, you could you could do that tax a lot of different ways. If you decided you wanted to tax platforms like Google and Facebook in particular, I, I'm sure you could find a way to tax them in a way that would, would drive those uh, dollars to, to public media. What I like about that, Sean, is that the way that these news bills are being written around the world, they say nothing about ensuring that any percentage of those dollars actually go to journalist salaries. Like it truly is just money going to enrich Rupert Murdoch and his cronies. So it, I, I, the way that that gets positioned as a solution to our crisis in journalism, I think is laughable. The crisis is at the local level. The crisis is across the country. Giving Rupert Murdoch more money does not address that crisis. So, you know, there's been some reporting in Australia that, you know, that, that these newsrooms did, yes, hire like a few, a few dozen reporters here, a few dozen reporters there. I'm grateful that those jobs exist, but I remain convinced we have found a really bad solution to this problem. You'll be familiar with the various arguments against government funding for the news media, including the risk of preferencing certain outlets over others, the potential harm to the public's perception of independence and trust, and possibly slowing much-needed innovation. What would you say to those trade-offs, Casey? Must we just live with them in the face of the alternative, which is the precipitous decline of journalism? Or is there some way to mitigate them in your mind? Well, I think no matter how you're running your, your media business, there's always a problem like that. You know, it's like, I'm I'm sort of beholden to my read. I can't ever really, well, I, I mean, I could, but there's always the risk that if I, my opinions start to diverge wildly from my readers, my readers all unsubscribe, I go out of it. I'm sort of beholden to them, right? You know, at the at the national level, you, you know, you raise some good concerns about independence. I would say there are ways to sort of distance the government from the media. You know, you set up your your independent blue ribbon commission, whatever. You we can design processes around this stuff. Um, I think the BBC is a pretty elegant example of like a great news organization that is funded with public funds that probably makes the UK's democracy stronger. So I think that this stuff basically works. There will always be challenges to work through, but it beats the alternative. And then on the private sector, like the private sector is going to continue to exist. You know, like just because the public is funding media, I don't think uh, means that entrepreneurs are going to get are going to quit trying to get rich. Um, so my hope would be that these things can can feed each other. There could be in innovation in public media too, right? Like 
I, I think that we want to fund both of these things. We need to try many strategies at once and then figure out what works and start sharing best practices. And that way, hopefully, we wind up with a bigger media than we had before. One of the challenges with any of these conversations is that we, of course, don't know what an equilibrium looks like. That is to say, the news media is likely to come through this period of disruption looking quite different than it currently does. Take Platformer, for instance. You have a pretty large, dedicated audience, which ostensibly likes that you've gone narrow yet deep on technology and its various applications. Well, traditional outlets have typically been wide yet shallow. What do you envision the future media landscape to look like? Is fragmentation and specialization the future of journalism? I think, like, if I just sort of had to bet on if events proceed the way that they're going right now, I think that most people pay sort of one subscription to a national news provider, sort of the big news publication in your country. And then you subscribe to maybe one publication that helps you do your job, maybe a couple publications that help you do your job. So something we would have called a trade journal in the past, I guess we still could, but platformer sort of fits in that category of something that people typically subscribe to because they feel like it's helpful for them at work. Um, and then that's kind of the media that we have. Like, you know, I, I don't see, again, we don't have any other solutions really for for local media. What I've hoped is that a bunch of people will try to take the sort of solo or two or three person newsroom model and apply that to, to big cities. Some people are trying that, it's seemingly, you know, it's like doing okay. So maybe that's kind of in the mix too. But like that is the media that we are on track to have. Like the big digital only publishers that relied on Facebook and Google traffic to sustain themselves. We are we are watching them collapse right now. That, like that, And I don't see how that trend is reversible. So unfortunately, that's kind of where I see us going. You want to elaborate on, on that part selfishly, because in some ways that is the hub's model to date. What do you foresee for digital firms that have relied on platforms like Facebook and Google to effectively push their content and build their audiences? What fundamentally, is the the inherent challenge with that model in your mind? The, the challenge is that traffic from those sources is going to decline over time precipitously. And it may, it, it might be one of those things where like it declines gradually and then completely, or maybe it will just sort of be gradually forever. But either way, no publisher should be betting that they're going to be getting more traffic from Google or Facebook a year from now than they are getting today. And if you are an advertising-based business, that poses really obvious challenges. And even if you're a subscription-based business, it poses some real challenges too. Because even today, you know, some people find subscription-based uh, products by Googling them. So that that's the challenge. And is that fundamentally, Casey, because of some of the technological developments that you discussed earlier, including Google's investment in AI? Or is it mostly because of political decisions by the platforms to essentially extract themselves from news and politics because of the controversies uh, that, that have surrounded them? I think it's both things. They're working together. The platforms have decided that, well, Facebook in particular, although TikTok, I would also put in this category, YouTube has never really been a news destination. All of those platforms have decided, like, we're not, we're not here to push journalism on people. We see ourselves more as being about entertainment. Um, and so while politics will still be discussed here, we are not going to be amplifying it the way that we were in the, in the 2010s. So, um, that is the first piece of it. And then the AI piece of it, 
is that platforms are just going to continue to have fewer reasons to send you away from them. They want to keep you on the platform. You know, Google is and should get most of the criticism over this. But if you look at it, the landscape, like go check out Arc Search, go check out Perplexity AI. They're building what they call answer engines. And the idea is that you can do what you might have done in the past on Google, ask an answer to a question. And instead of getting your 10 blue links and then go clicking on those links and sharing ad revenue with those publishers or driving subscription to those publishers, Arc Search, Perplexity AI, They'll just tell you the answer. And there'll be a little footnote at the bottom that says, hey, we got that from the hub or hey, we got that from Platformer. But in practice, almost nobody's going to click on that. Certainly nobody's going to get revenue from that. So even if Google never took another step in this direction, they would eventually be outpaced by one of their competitors who is, you know, um, this is what we call um, a, a sort of like ethical innovation, which is just sort of like by ignoring societal norms and what would be beneficial to the broader world, you can make a lot of money. So that's how Arc Search and Perplexity are trying it. And it's just going to put pressure on Google to do the same thing. They're, they're already trying it. You know, you may have seen this thing they call um, search generative experience because, of course, Google hasn't come up with a good brand name since Google <laughs> itself more than 20 years ago. So if you use SGE, you will just start to see a little summary of an answer. Um, and yes, there will be a footnote and you're never going to click it. So that is the future that we're going to. The one exception to the diminished ambitions about a digital town square ostensibly is X under Elon Musk's leadership. And you are not optimistic. In your predictions for the year, in fact, you predicted that Meta's threads will eclipse X in daily users. What's the cause of your prediction, Casey? Is it optimism about threads or pessimism about X or a bit of both? Uh, it is a bit of both. I think that my, my the bet that I've made is that over time, X will prove out the idea that most people like content moderation. Most people do not like to see hate speech and porn when they're not looking for it. They will see it when they're not looking for it on X. My prediction has been that over time, that will decrease the number of people who visit X, it will decrease the number of people who advertise on X, and eventually the, the crushing debt uh, that X is under will sort of tank the, the website. And then at the same time, you have threads, which just sort of operates by normal, what I think of as normal content moderation. They remove the hate speech, they remove the porn. Uh, my suspicion has been more people will like that, more advertisers will want to be there, and it will just sort of create a virtuous circle. So we'll see, but that's the bet that I'm making. On the subject of content moderation, the Canadian government introduced online harms legislation that it ultimately abandoned in part because of controversy. There's expectation that we'll see at some point a successor bill. What would be your advice to policymakers, Casey, when they think about the role of public policy relative to the platforms when it comes to managing online harms? Well, you know, I'm I'm an American and we do have this First Amendment. And so I do tend to get really antsy when the government comes along and says, we are going to decide what is harmful speech. This winds up being a way of essentially preserving the status quo. It can easily be weaponized from preventing marginalized groups from sharing their stories online, from being activists, from being dissidents, from pushing for change. So I, when people start talking about regulate, regulating speech harms, like my hope for them is they try to do it in a really narrow and depoliticized way. That has proven challenging, I think, for a lot of countries to do. Most of the countries that have been passing uh, laws related to online harms have, have been doing it to quash dissent. Uh, so 
you know, I, I think I am somebody who believes that speech on platforms can cause harm, uh, particularly when that speech is amplified by those platforms, when stuff goes viral and can inspire, you know, uh, hateful, violent mobs to spring up. Um, that sort of thing is real. People are driven to self-harm by the things that they see on these websites. So I think it, it is a good thing to want to reduce the level of harms on those platforms. But, you know, I think that when, when I think of like what would make me feel okay, I think of it more in terms of something like our like Federal Communications Commission, which sort of regulates what sort of things can be shown um, like on primetime uh, network television, right? It's like, it, but it, it, but what I like about it is it's, it's like, it, it doesn't say like you, you can absolutely like never make this kind of video. It's like, well, if you want to show it in this place to this audience, you have to keep these sort of things in mind. And I think that's like probably a good way of thinking about something like a TikTok or a YouTube, um, as opposed to saying like, we're going to prohibit these categories of speech. Penultimate question. We started the conversation talking about some of the trends that you've witnessed since you've launched Platformer, including in some ways the declining standing of the platforms amongst the general public and in politics more generally. But one gets a sense, Casey, that we're living in kind of an anti-anti-platform moment. That is to say that there is now a sort of correction to the negativity that we've seen that the platform subjected to in, in recent years. Is that your sense? And if so, what do you think an equilibrium looks like in terms of how the public thinks and talks about these major platforms? Well, well, give me an example, because I don't know that I would characterize this as an anti-anti-platform moment. Like, what makes you say that? Well, you just get the sense that even in Canada, in the context of the debate about C-18, you've had smaller startups like The Hub, incidentally, come out and talk about the benefit of partnering with Google and Meta, that we don't see these platforms as threats to our business. We see them in, in a lot of ways as enablers of our business. And, and I think that line of thinking has found some resonance, at least in the Canadian debate. I mean, that, that's, that is great to hear. Like, I think these platforms can enable success for them. I mean, they, you know, this is this is just repeating their line. But you know, if, if you ask Google and Facebook why they exist, you know, they raise their right hand and they say, "We're here to help small businesses." Um, turns out they benefit a lot more than the small businesses. But you know, the small businesses, you know, might be able to eke some dollars out of it. So, you know, I'm I'm glad that people are recognizing it. You know, the principle I try to live my life by is like, I just want the internet to work as well for other people as it works for me, and. Part of that statement is like, the internet has worked really well for me. And even though I don't rely on Google or Facebook for traffic, I do post every column I write on social media. And that is how people who have not yet read Platformer learn about Platformer. So again, like it all goes back to the open web. Like I think it is cool that people anywhere around the world can just hop on the internet, share their perspective, do some journalism, publish some criticism, some analysis, uh, criticize their government. I think these are all really good things. And it is undeniable that they've also come with a lot of harms. It's undeniable that, that outsized benefits have gone to Google and Facebook in a way that is kind of choking the life out of that web. And I do want to see regulation try to restore some balance to that. But I also want the open web as we know it to continue to exist after that. Well said. Which leads me to a final question that I've put to others in this series. Casey, are you ultimately optimistic or pessimistic about the future of journalism? You know, in the short term, unfortunately, I am pessimistic. 
I don't see a lot of good leadership at enough media companies to make me believe that they're going to get through this. We're going to lose a lot of really great journalists. And I think there's a lot of amazing journalists that have just never entered the profession because it's too unstable. So I think that is a tragedy. And I think the combination of platforms being less interested in news and AI are just going to make that really challenging over the short to medium term. In the long run, though, something I take comfort from is just that journalism is a naturally occurring phenomenon. Like you can't really get more than like 100 people living in a town before somebody's like, you know what, I'm actually just going to start write down, I'm going to write down things that happen in this town and like post it somewhere. And the thing that we're trying to like figure out at Platformer is while we assume that like the New York Times is of the world, they're going to figure it out. You know, the big national papers, they're going to figure it out. We think that there is something to be figured out in this smaller model. We think that reader support is really powerful. We think designing good journalism products is really powerful. Uh, we think that making journalism that people really care about is powerful and people will pay for it. So like, I'm already living the dream that I want other people to live. And the thing that gives me confidence over the long term is like, what we did was not rockets. Like, truly, we work hard, but it was not rockets. I will tell the, I tell the playbook to people all the time. Journalists call me all the time. How do you do it? I'll tell you. So more people can do this, but I do think we're in for like a really rough few years. Well, there's a ton of insight in that answer as there's been throughout the conversation. Casey, where can listeners find you in your commentary? Yeah, well, uh, Platformer, you can find at platformer.news. And I also co-host the podcast Hard Fork, which is about tech and the future. We talk a lot about these issues. And you can find it, as they say, wherever you get your podcasts. In that vein, I'm grateful to have had the chance to speak with you. Casey Newton, founder and lead writer for Platformer. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks so much, Sean. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.